August 5th is 2009. Our message is called SIFT. Uh, S-I-F-T. This comes to me at a time in my life that it is a little uncomfortable for me to think about this, where it is uh, not as much fun to preach on this kind of thing. I actually have another message that I wanted to preach. I talked with Matthew about it, and he said uh, exactly what I didn't want to hear. Sounds like the first one's more appropriate to where we are in this church right now, Eric. And I thought, oh, great. Uh, Having said that, everything in the Word is beautiful. And the fact that it makes me uncomfortable ought to be good for you because it means we all learn and grow. Uh, Sunday will be a message called Sticks and Bones. But tonight is Sift. So the first thing I want to do is have you turn to Judges 7. The word sift only appears in the NIV two times. It appears once in the Older Testament and once in the Newer Testament. And both times are very unique instances. It is uh, it's a wonderful thing. Our original men's meetings were taken from the seventh book, seventh chapter, and seventh verse that had to do with this. And we called them meetings of the 300. So our first text that we're going to examine tonight comes from Judges 7. And... Uh, We will read that in just a minute, but I want to tell you that the word here, sift, is a Hebrew word that is saw-roth. It's uh, two syllables, saw-roth. If you wanted to spell it, it would be T-S-A-R-A-P-H, saw-roth. I want to tell you what uh, the complete word study dictionary says of this Hebrew word. It says it is a verb meaning to refine, to test, or to sift. This word describes the purifying process of a refiner who heats metal, takes away the dross, and is left with a pure substance. When applied to people, this word refers to the purifying effects of external tribes that God often uses to purify his people from sin. So this word, when employed in the Older Testament, uh, is often translated uh, to test, to purify, to refine, in this one instance, it's translated sift. Uh, so y'all are in Judges 7. I'm going to get there. I want to read you this and talk about ways in which this occurs. So rough. Okay, 7th book, 7th chapter, and I told you, let's just start in the 4th verse. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. Then if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. The Lord put all of the fighting men of Israel, number one, when they started, he said, hey, how many of you are scared? Go home. Then he said, how many of you would like to go fight the Midianites? The 30,000 that were there followed. But God kept putting them in positions where their actions would show something about the condition of their heart. Wouldn't you, if you went to battle, want as many men as possible? I mean, I certainly would. Uh, If you were hanging from the edge of a cliff by a rope, who in this room would you want to have the other end of the rope? You know, probably want to tie that thing around Brandon, wouldn't you? (laughs) It would 
tie it around Cody. You want to tie it around somebody who's going to hold on to that thing and not be easily drug over, right? But you're probably not going to tie it around Judah. Is it because Judah is uh, not trustworthy? It's because it's not loving? It's because we've all been designed for different things, right? Some are designed to walk on high wires, and some are designed to uh, support the base of a pyramid. I mean, God put us together for different reasons. And when he put Israel in a situation where he wanted something from them, he began to examine their hearts. And the way you examine the heart of a man is just like you examine the fruit on a tree. What comes out of a man's life by way of his actions tells you what is in his heart. If a man is exceedingly proficient in warfare, is he useful to society? Well, sure, especially if you're a warrior society. Do you want him to watch your infants? Probably not. If a man is exceedingly good with children, but has no experience in warfare, is he useful to society? Well, sure. You need people to watch your infants. But you probably are not going to put him on the front line, huh? Stop it. Don't change your diaper. Probably not going to happen. God put these people in a situation where their actions began to show them some, show him something about their hearts. And when you knelt down and put your face in the water... First off, that speaks of meeting your need regardless of what else is happening. To put your face in the water to drink means you lose sight of the battlefield. It means that you're not concerned with who's on your left, your right, anything else. You just need to drink. It could speak of even a selfish nature. But to have knelt on one knee to lap the water from your hand to your face so that you can keep your head on the swivel means that you understood why you were there. It was in your heart to be there. You were not just following the crowd. You had a mission. Well, most of what we're going to look at tonight are the situations in which God puts us to refine, to sift, to test our hearts. Turn with me to Proverbs 25.4. You can tell me when you're there. Proverbs 25.4. Read it out loud, somebody, but it's got to be loud. Remove the dross from the silver, and out comes material for the silversmith. You know it? No. Well, I mean, yeah, sure. Remove the wicked from the king's presence, and his throne will be established through righteousness. Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence, and do not claim, in a, do not claim a place among great men. It is better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before noblemen. You can hold there. Now let me ask you something. At the same time he's talking about removing dross, and he's talking about refining, is it interesting that he talked about where you sit at a table? What is it about somebody that makes them walk up and take the first place in line? What is it about a man, what does it say about their heart, when there are 300 people there, but he cuts in front of all of the others and goes, first? You say, well, it's nothing. I mean, he's just hungry, right? But doesn't it say something about how he views himself? If Patricia's in line and Mandy's in line and I kind of shove them out of the way and I get in line, what does that say? It says, inwardly, I'm more concerned about meeting my need than theirs, right? God puts us in situation after situation after situation so that things can be revealed for the purpose of removing them. It's not for the purpose of saying, boy, you are all really bad people. It's for the purpose of refining us. All metals when they come out of the ground, have impurities in them. Uh, to some extent, most of them are alloys. They're mixed with other metals. And the only way you find a pure substance is to put heat to it. 
And after a time of firing, they begin to separate because they're really made of different densities, different substances, different specific heats. You are the same way. The center of you, the very core of your being, your heart has been purified by God. God has poured himself into it, but you are lying if you don't believe that it is an alloy. Because the Bible says that your heart above all things is deceptive, deceitful. And it also calls it a wellspring of life. How do you reconcile that kind of thing? This is how Paul can sound almost schizophrenic in the seventh chapter of Romans when he begins to speak about good and bad that he wants to do. And he asks himself who will rescue him from this wretched body of death. Our king will refine us if we submit to the refining process. Look at Psalm 66. Boy, it is deathly silent when everybody's turning. Thank you. Psalm 66, read with me. I'll read this to you. Verse 10. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. The king of the universe laid burdens on someone's back and put them in prison to refine them. Most of our theology says God would never do something like this to you. In fact, people get saved with the messages of God will only powder your nose. He will only fluff your hair and tell you how wonderful you are. Gosh darn it, people like you. You're a champion. The gospel teaches us that he will allow you to be crushed for a purpose. There's a refining process that happens. Before we move on with the refining process, I need you to see a couple more scriptures. Turn with me to Isaiah 48. That's good. It's in the same book. The brother is beating y'all like a dog tonight. No, well, yeah. (laughs) Isaiah 48. Look with me at verse 10. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. The king of the universe, when he wants to use you, must refine you. And one of the ways this happens is affliction and opposition. You know, I had one of those born-again experiences that... um, Well, some other men have written books about their experiences, and they were similar to mine. Okay, I've never been gifted with writing or any of those things, nor called to do it. But my point is, I was born again in a way that was just not an average story. It was not, um, well, you know, I kind of loved the Lord all my life, and at some point I became a little more serious. And there's nothing wrong with that testimony. I praise God if that's yours and you have clung to it. Having said that, Because of the way that I was born again, a lot of things came to me very, very easily. Uh, I had struggled so greatly with lots and lots of sin that was put underfoot in a single day. The moment I prayed, Lord, change me, it was not there anymore. So what would happen to me as a young man is I could look at you, I could look at someone else and see that there was the same sin there that was delivered from me immediately And I thought, am 
must not really be saved like me. You must be weak. You must just not be very strong in the Lord. Now, I might not have said that out loud, but that was my thought. I even had special little names for a few Christians that I thought struggled with weakness in areas that I deemed unacceptable. I called them pansies. Like the dainty little flower. That's all good and well until the Lord brought me to a place where I was confronted with my own horrible, gut-wrenching, sinful weakness. See, if you knew all the areas you were wrong in, you wouldn't be wrong in them, right? (laughs) But the Lord brings you through a process of revealing your heart to you and to Him so that you can see how utterly dependent upon Him you are. I have two more scriptures for you before we move on to something that I'm dying to get to. It would be in Isaiah 1. Look at 25. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. The king of the universe says that he will put his hand like resistance against you in order to purge away dross, impurities, things that should not be in your life that are. He has the right out of one lump of clay to make whatever he would like to do. One of the problems with us is we begin to envision in our lives the things that we believe we're called to do and the way that they should happen. And the longer we envision it a certain way, the more upset we are if it does not happen exactly in that way. I knew from the very beginning I was called to work with Matthew Piro. I knew that. It's one of the things that God spoke to me uh, in the first year I was saved. And I had a vision about it and saw Matt as an old man, balding, playing a guitar with bent knees, swayed back, and kind of a larger belly than he had back then on the stage playing a guitar. And what's interesting is Matt barely played a guitar then. He had a big, full head of hair, and he was skinny like a toothpick. (laughs) Cass, I I prophesied all of this upon Matthew. And he began to show me that. But I want to tell you something. When I reached a place in life where I was going to have to go a different direction, and it did not look like it was going to be possible to work with Matt, some areas of my heart began to surface. I was angry with the leadership that I thought had wronged me. The people who had screwed up what God was doing in my life. I began to think, I forgive them, but God's going to deal with them. You know? I put my finger in one man's face that was about 40 years older than me, and I said, God will deal with you, or I will. Impurities in our heart. I didn't even know they were there. And at the time, I was so blinded by the wrong that I thought had been dealt to me, I didn't even see what was wrong with me. Look at Zechariah 13 now. There you go, brother. Somebody's beating the man because he can't spell Zachariah. <laughs> In Zechariah 13, the ninth verse, 
Actually, we're going to start in the 7th verse. It's important that you remember the context of this, because we're going to graduate to the Newer Testament here in just a minute, and we're going to bring this home with some biblical characters that you're pretty familiar with. But there is a passage of Scripture quoted in the New Testament that we're now reading in the Older, and no one ever goes to look at the context in which it is quoted. So look at uh, 13, starting in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land declares Yahweh, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like the silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. This prophecy speaks of a time when the Lord's shepherd would be stricken and it would be the Lord's will to do so and the Lord's hand would be against the people. For the purpose of refining them, so that he could winnow through them, bringing some into the barn and some into unquenchable fire, but resulting in a people group that called on him by name, and he knew them by name. Now turn with me to Luke 22. Good. While you're turning to Luke 22, I want to tell you some things. If you're taking notes, this one comes from Proverbs 17.3. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold. But the Lord tests, refines, sifts the heart. Proverbs 21.2. All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. Very few times in the body of Christ do you set out to do something wrong. Our ways seem right to us. You know what else the Proverbs say? He who presents his case first... Seems right. How many times has somebody come to you and said, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened? You thought, oh man, poor guy, you've been so wrong. Until you met the guy he was talking about and heard the other side of the story. Right? Well, the problem with us arguing amongst ourselves and our hearts is there is nobody to tell the other side of the story. You only see it from your point of view. And sometimes when God is doing something that is eternal in perspective, that takes decades or centuries to accomplish, all you can see is this week it's unpleasant and he promised me good things. Not understanding that tears and sorrow today reap a harvest of joy tomorrow. Not knowing that what God is doing today is refining us for a purpose tomorrow. And then in Christ sometimes we look and we say, well, is this God doing this or is it the devil? I want to tell you something. He's big enough to use the devil like a tool. And mean that in every sense of the word that you people know how to use it. <laughs> I have a screwdriver that's made for a certain purpose. But because I own it, I can drive it with a hammer if I choose to. That's not its intended purpose. But I can do that because I choose to. It doesn't have any choice in the matter. It might not like it. It might bend, it might crack, but I own it. The devil may have intent on your life to harm you, and I'm going to show you an example right now where he intended to harm someone, and at the same time God intended to use that very same tool to refine them. 
While you're in Luke 22, I want to tell you the only New Testament use of the verb. This is a cognate, and I get tired of explaining to y'all what cognates are because I think you don't care or you already know. This is a Greek word that would be used to translate the Hebrew word we've been speaking about. And it is synazo. Synazo. S-I-N-I-A-Z-O. Synazo. And it is translated only once in all of the New Testament, and it's translated sift. Now, it has a little different interpretation, a little different definition than the Hebrew word did. Here it comes from the uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon. <coughs> Dropping the figure into something so that inward agitation to the trying of one's faith on the verge of overthrowing. The picture that is drawn in Thayer's Greek lexicon shows a giant sift with something thrown inside of it so that it is shaken and sifted to the point of overthrow, till it's coming apart. The difference between one kind of refining and this Greek word, the kind of refining in our Hebrew, is a refining that is only for a good purpose. The kind of refining that we're talking about in this word sift, siniadzo, has to do with a mal-intent. It is to shake you to the point that it has overthrown your faith. With that in mind, let us read in Luke 22, and we'll start in verse 20. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to con be considered the greatest. Does that strike you as a little odd? Let's imagine that you love Matthew very much. You have left your families. You've left everything that you own because you want to go and be like Matthew. And now you're eating dinner and Matthew says, you know, one of you guys here is going to betray me. And then the next thing in the narrative is they all begin to argue about who was the greatest. They all began to argue among themselves as to who was better. It starts off with the question, which one of us is going to betray him? What's well, not me? What's well, not me? You'd be trained before I would. See, because I'm really just a little bit better than you. You remember, I'm the one who got out of the boat when you stayed in it. Yeah, well, well, I'm the one that he talked to uh, about feeding the 5,000. Well, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Where were you? See, there's something in their hearts that has to be sifted out before they can be truly useful. The kind of thing that makes men popes rather than pastors. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules, like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom. 
just as my Father conferred one upon me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Before we get to the, this next verse, do you get the feeling that their self-centeredness has caused them to miss the essence of what's happening here? He's talking about being betrayed. He's talking about being murdered. They're talking about which of them is greater. And he says, come on, man. I'm here serving you, and I'm certainly the greatest at the table. I'm trying to give you a kingdom. And you're sitting off talking about who's better than each other? But I have to ask, if you've ever read something like this and thought, boy, those stupid disciples. I've lived long enough now to see people healed of amazing things. I told you a few weeks ago, a woman healed of AIDS. Just died. Just died. Fifteen years later after spending years in jail for embezzlement. How does that happen? Great gifts, great amazing acts of God's grace, they're not signs of maturity. Being sifted, producing the right fruit, those are signs of maturity. It takes no maturity to receive a gift. It takes maturity to bear fruit in season and out of season. So often the body of Christ looks at what we have, looks at the gifts that we possess, talented musicians, talented orators, people with a charisma, and we see that as maturity. Maturity is a depth of character that has been refined by God and is completely <coughs> void of self-interest. When measured against that testing stone, the church doesn't do very well. You can stop in most church parking lots and they have to have policemen direct traffic. Why would that be? Why would you have to have a man with a gun direct traffic in a church parking lot? Why do you have to have anybody direct traffic at all? Why do you need Christian Secret Service agents? You know, they got their coats on and their little earpieces directing the crowd and protecting and making sure that everything works right. Why do you have to have that? Apparently, we're not very confident that the body is really self. I was in a large church one time and saw something that was frightening. They wanted to give away a CD. So they said, who's been saved this month? Hundreds stood up. Who's been saved this week? Ten or twenty were sent up. Who got saved today? Now it was just two women. The first one down here can have this CD. They almost ate each other alive. I never saw such a large woman run quite so fast. What a bad idea. We need to recognize that being saved does not cure our heart conditions. Being saved did not refine us. Being saved initiated the process. That's all it did. And the extent to which the process has permeated the rest of you has to do with how willing you are to participate in the process. If every time God's put you in a difficult position, you have rebelled. If every time you've been under unjust authority, you squealed. If every time you have been in a position that was uncomfortable, you sought to escape it, you are not being refined. God put his people in unjust situations to refine them. Now let's see what he said to Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. That word for sift here is Seniazzo. He's asked to shake you to the point of over 
Is there any doubt that Satan has malintent for Peter? So here's a great question then. Why on earth would God allow something like that? Why would God allow a man to be shaken to the point of overthrowing his faith? If his faith is overthrown, what a lost investment. How much had Jesus invested in Peter? I mean, he said, Peter, this revelation you've got to rock, I'm going to build the church on, man. How much had he invested in him? But if he comes out the other side refined and more useful, what is he then worth? It's like the difference between an uncut diamond and a cut diamond. You could mistake one for a rock. The other is priceless. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for, this word is y'all. Y'all. Your Bible translates it you, I'm sorry. It's y'all. It is plural. There's only one way I know to make you plural, and that's y'all. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift y'all as we. Is Simon the only one who is going to be sifted? But he is the one who the focus is going to be upon. They all are going to face something that is going to cause one to run naked from a garden, fleeing for his life. To cause the others to go and hide for fear. Only one even has the courage to make it to the cross. Would you call that sifting? Refining? Satan desired to overthrow their trust in God. Why would God allow something like that to happen? And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Isn't it beautiful about God that he can say, hey, I'm helping before you a blessing and a curse. After you've been cursed and you come back, I'm going to bless you. Only God could do something like that. Simon, Simon, Satan desires to overthrow your faith. When you've turned back to me, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew he wasn't going to do well. How did Jesus know he wasn't going to do well? Well, because he's God and because he spent three years with him. You know, it's an amazing thing. Others have been able to see things in my life that I could not see. I'm reading a book now, and as this pastor is speaking about a young man in his life, I went, huh, that was me. I never saw it before then. This pastor began to speak of a young man that was capable, who had been radically saved, who had spent serious time before the Lord, and because of that, he was very, very self-assured. That doesn't sound like a bad thing to me. At least it didn't until I kept reading. <laughs> Let's look at Simon's uh, response. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me th deny three times that you know me. In Matthew, you don't have to turn there. I just want you to know in 26, 33 through 35, the same conversation takes place, but Peter adds to it, even if all of them fall away, I will not. How about that? Not just I won't fall away, but even if those guys fall away, I won't. What if we add to it Mark's account? Mark 14, 31 says he insisted emphatically that he would not fall away. What does that point to, you think? When the king of the universe is standing before you, of whom you have had the revelation, 
He is the Messiah of God, of whom you have had the revelation. He has the very words of life. Stands before you and says, your faith is about to be shaken to the point of overthrowing. And you say, "Uh uh-uh, emphatically, no, even if all of them fall, I would never fall. And what had they been arguing about a few minutes ago? Who is the greatest? What does that say? Well, let's look and see if we find anything else. Turn with me to Matthew 16. See if we can hit the nail on the head here. Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said, Peter... Get behind me, Satan, said to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Before we get to this next part, this explanation, if you will. What is Peter's problem? Does Peter not have Jesus' welfare in mind? Of course he does. It's even an innocent desire. No, Lord, I'm not going to fall away from you on the one hand. On the other hand, no, Lord, don't be, you're not going to be killed. But can you hear a little bit of the strength of Peter's own personality, his self-reliance, the virtue of his own right arm that stands up and says, no, I won't let this happen to you. I'm strong enough that I won't fall. There's only a certain amount of this that God can do And it must be purged from Peter. Otherwise, the kingdom would be built upon Peter. All of us, saints, are taken to places in our lives where you are quite literally at the end of your rope. And you must be. Because it is the broken, the contrite, the humble in spirit that get to see God's power. Otherwise, we are not capable of discerning the alloy. We're not capable of discerning what is truly God moving through us and what is just by the virtue of our own talents, gifting, and administration. And God will not share His glory with another. He will not do it. I heard this comedian named Ron White. If that offends you, I'm sorry. I like him. He reminds me of every lost uncle in my family. Got a dog named Roscoe he likes to talk about. He happens to like cigars and he probably drinks way too much. But he said he was in a bar and uh, he had gotten boisterous and there were about eight bouncers. And he said he didn't know how many it was going to take to throw him out, but he knew how many they were going to use. <laughs> I don't know what it will take to get you into a place where you feel crushed. But I know what God is willing to use to get you there. And saints, it's not just one time. It's over and over and over. And this is so that the kingdom might not rely on men's strength, but upon God's power. How many of you have ever quoted Zechariah? When we say, not by strength, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Sometimes you'll follow it with a thunderous utterance of tongues. Or a prophecy or something. And yet when it comes down to it, any time we cannot rely on our strength, our abilities, how uncomfortable is it? 
I hate the thought that there's not a thing I can do to get anybody to register in our preschool. It makes me nauseous, to be honest. That's right where God likes us to be. Because at the end of the day, whether it happens as I thought it would happen or not, it entirely depends upon Him. Nobody will be able to say, Eric built the preschool. Even if they say it, Eric will know it's not true. I want to submit to you the idea that Peter becomes more useful, not less useful, after actually having denied Jesus three times. Before we move to any of these other scriptures, I I want to show you in Luke 22, Jesus was sifted. He was sifted in the same kind of way Peter was sifted. Luke 22, look at 39. Jesus went as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. Tell me the truth. With Peter, in the previous two examples, I won't fall away from you. You will never be taken to the cross. Do you hear not my will, but your will be done? Or do you hear my will be done? Most Christians that I know, and I love all of you, I'm in this category as well. We've learned to quote scriptures that say, not my will, but your will be done. But the truth is, we only want our will to be done. And we're doing our best to conform our will to God's, but we're pretty disappointed if it doesn't happen exactly like we felt like it should. And some of this comes from the way you were saved. You're saved to a message that says, Jesus will do this and this and this and this. That is not the salvation message. The salvation message is he has done for you everything that needs to be done, and now it's your turn to do something for him. The salvation message is you have been forgiven all of your debts. Now don't go choke people who owe you things. The salvation message has no room for a selfish self-reliance that is upset with God or God's people when it doesn't turn out the way you envisioned it. When you find yourself disappointed, I just thought it was going to be this way. You know what you were forgetting? You owe Him your very life, your breath, your existence. Your standing here today is the result of His benevolence. How arrogant is it to be upset that this week didn't go the way that you thought it should? I was so sure a couple years after I was born again, I was ready. I'm ready. I worked hard. I memorized the word. I studied it at a voracious pace. Those of you that knew me then can testify to that. And because of my learning, because of my zeal, and because of a God-given and Eric-corrupted boldness, I didn't have any problem asserting myself into every situation. And God could not use me, but I was so sure I was ready. As breaking began to occur, and I started to see cracks in my own foundation and wondering whether I would even stay saved and married and in love with Jesus and all of those things, is the time in my life which He began to really use me fruitfully. 
all the rest of the time before that, there had been baptisms, there had been people saved, but there was always a little too much Eric in it. And that's not because my heart was not right. It was as right as I knew how to be. But I was being refined. And in ten years, I'll look back upon this time period and say the same thing. Because I will be more refined. God will put you in a situation after situation that causes you to grow. Because He loves you. And He wants something precious from you. This is not to scare you. I'm trying to get you to embrace what God is doing rather than kick against it. Before we move on from Jesus sifting, I think I ought to ask you, was Peter a coward? No. I wouldn't describe Peter as a coward. I mean, he's just about to hack off a guy's ear. Peter's not a coward. And think about the circumstances in which he hacks off the guy's ear, right? Let's suppose that all of us have come to arrest Brandon and James the only one with a sword back there. All of us have swords, but Gabe's the only one with a sword. Is it an act of bravery or cowardice for him to start hacking off our ears? I would say that's bravery, wouldn't you? He's standing against the mob on behalf of Jesus. But was it God's will? He didn't put ears back on. Peter was not a coward. He was just misdirected. And because he was misdirected, God had to take him to a place where he reached the end of his own strength. So the mighty Peter who had said, no, never, even if all of them emphatically, I will never, met his match. And it wasn't with the Roman army. It wasn't with the temple guards. It wasn't with a demon. It's with a servant girl. They said, listen to him talk. Surely he's with them. He's from Galilee thing that he promised he would never do, he does three times. So why was Peter able to stand and on the strength of his own personality do so many great things, but here he's failing? Because God wanted him to come to a place where he could be refined and emptied of self. You know what Peter would never forget the rest of his life? When it came down to it, I don't personally have the strength to stand for Jesus. But if he pours himself into me, I can do all things. This is the St. Peter that wrote, Clothe yourself with humility. Love one another deeply, for we were all born of incorruptible seed. See, Peter had a revelation after this that made him usable in a way that his shadow could heal people. But prior to this, he had still been arguing with people about who was the greatest. And we know better than to let words like that come out of our mouths. If you're called to youth ministry, whether you're allowed to serve in youth ministry or not, you'll care about the youth. If you're called to this church, whether you're recognized in the church as anybody or nobody, you'll still show up for church. And if you don't, it shows something about your heart. I'll only do it if it turns out the way I think it should. Now, we could go through example after example after example like that. In your dating lives, in your raising your children lives, what is God trying to show you about your own heart? And do you only participate when it goes like you think it should? Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God 
are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When we come to the end of ourselves, we can find the beginning of His strength. Psalm 141. I want to put a different emphasis on these syllables. Look at verse 4. Let not my heart be drawn to what is evil, to take part in wicked deeds with men who are evildoers. How many of you are even comfortable saying that out loud? Let not my heart be drawn to what is evil, to take part in wicked deeds with evildoers. Why aren't we comfortable saying that out loud? We don't even like the suggestion that that is possible, do we? Could there be a little too much self-reliance in your life? A little too much strength of personality in your life? The guy who said this had been so humble before his whole nation that he didn't have any problem admitting where his weakness was so that God could be strong. He no longer cared about how others viewed him. And everybody says that from the ridiculous teenage goth kid who's standing here to the jock who's built a certain world. Nobody cares what others think, but everything about their life says just the opposite. I wish Christians were different. But the truth is, we don't even like to say things out loud like, let not my heart be drawn to what is evil, to wicked deeds done by evildoers. Because we wouldn't want anybody to think that we had that drawing. I want to tell you a secret. We all know anyway. The question is, what are you doing about it? Because listen to what David invited. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. Yet my prayer is ever against the deeds of evildoers. He is basically acknowledging that there are things in him he does not want. And he's doing it publicly. He's writing a song for old Israel to sing at his expense. Come on, saints. This is how the great Hebrew sages say, My humiliation is my exaltation, and my exaltation is my humiliation. The pride of life creeps in in so many ways. And it doesn't take much to jade your view of the Word of God. It really doesn't. It doesn't take much to only see in it the good things and not see the bitter herbs that are bringing your eyes to tears. In fact, you can sit in church week after week after week and be sure he's talking about everybody but you. And slowly learn to harden your heart. I tell you, the king of the universe is finding new and inventive ways to poke at my heart and show me the end of my strength. But the exciting part about that this is really where we get to see him most. I probably don't have a whole lot more we need to say. I do want to share with you that the Jeremiah 17, 5-10 scripture about the tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit in season and out has no fear of drought because its roots go really deeply. It is the time of testing, the time of sifting where you develop roots in who Jesus is rather than who you are. See, the reason that this tree can bear fruit in season and out is it is firmly rooted in the character of Jesus rather than reliance on its own abilities. That is so easy to talk about and so very hard to do. Do you know how the passage ends? The heart is deceitful 
wicked beyond cure. <laughs> Why would you merge those two ideas? Because your heart sits there and says, no, I'm fine, I'm good, we'll pass. We're okay. I'm good, don't look any further. But the righteous man acknowledges, God, there are things here that shouldn't be. Thank you, Lord, for putting me under this boss to bring this out in me. Thank you, Lord God, for putting me next to this co-worker to bring this out in me. You are refining me. The problem is not with them. The problem is with me. That takes some maturity. Not hard to do it tomorrow after you heard the sermon. It's hard to do it next month after you've heard ten more sermons on different subjects. First Chronicles twenty-eight nine to ten says that God examines even the motives behind the thoughts you're having. So when you have a thought, God is close enough to you. He's watched your life enough that He knows why you're thinking what you're thinking. That's pretty powerful. That scares me. I want to close with Hebrews 12. Matt, do you think we could play one song? Or two or ten, whatever everybody has the stomach for. In Hebrews 12, I think we should probably start with 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refuse him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may re remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I am telling you that the reason that shaking occurs in our life is to remove that which can be shaken so that what remains is unshakable. God has invested in this to the point where he allowed Jesus, the shepherd, to be stricken for the sole purpose of sifting the sheep. But in the end, he's ended up with a people who call God their God, and he knows them by name. I want that kind of refinement in my life. I'm thankful for it. The truth is you can scarcely escape it. But if you embrace it, it becomes all the more fruitful. Let's worship God together and then we'll go home and eat and do all the things we do and enter the refining process.